We start with a B.C. government and a premier here on the defensive now over record high gas prices. Drivers getting hammered at the gas pumps right now. And now, now is the time Premier John Horgan decides to spend $789 million on a new museum that nobody was asking for. Are you kidding me? Here is the new B.C. Liberal leader, Kevin Falcon, grilling Horgan in the legislature on this yesterday. Will the Premier cancel this ridiculous vanity museum project and use those dollars to help British Columbians get access to a family physician and be able to afford to fill up their cars? Okay, Liberal leader Kevin Falcon in the legislature yesterday. He was sworn in as the new MLA there yesterday, and he joins me now. Kevin Falcon, thank you for coming on this morning. Thanks for having me on, Mike. Okay, let's talk about this museum. I mean, $789 million. We, we know it's going to be more than that. I mean, are those like current, current year dollars, or is it, are those $20, $30 when it's supposedly going to open? Do we know? Well, you know, part of the problem, Mike, is that this, he just lurched out on a Friday afternoon with this bizarre billion-dollar proposal because there's another $224 million, you have to recall, uh, that to store all the uh, relics and archive materials uh, off-site. Uh, yeah. So that's why we call it the billion-dollar vanity project. But what really concerns me about it is it's, it, there's no business case. There, it, you know, mm. like nothing at all. Uh, it's just there's nothing in the budget. There's no capital dollars for that $789 million new, brand-new museum that nobody has asked for and, frankly, is unnecessary. Um, and, and what it speaks to, to me, is just a total lack of priority. I mean, at a time when people... You know, one in five British Columbians can't access a family doctor. He's out there giving himself $40,000 pay raises and, and, and doing these billion-dollar museums that nobody's asked for. And it just, like, it's bizarre to me. I don't understand what's happening in Victoria, frankly. I, I took a look at the latest annual report last night from the Royal BC Museum, including their visitor satisfaction rate, which is very, very high. People still like the museum even during COVID when attendance went down, understandably, vast majority of people visiting that museum, very happy with it. I mean, is there any reason to build a new one right now? Well, no, there isn't. And yeah. here's, here's the issue. Look, I mean, he will argue, he came up with some really strange arguments yesterday. He said, well, part of it's, you know, under the, you know, the water table and there's seismic yeah. issues, all this. And it's like, okay, well, if those are really concerns... You would think the Massey Tunnel might be a concern. There's 60,000 people a day going underwater. But put it, putting that aside for a second, um, this is a museum that could you definitely could use uh, some upgrades, just seismic upgrades you can do. There's issues you can do to deal with asbestos, et cetera. But you can do that at a fraction of the cost. And, and there yeah. seems to be some sort of personal animus to this thing. My, my kids are 9 and 12. They love the museum. Most people that go there think it's fantastic. And, and he's quoted as saying he only sends people he doesn't like to the museum. It's, it's just what? really strange. Okay, let me play a clip here of what he had to say to you yesterday. Here he is defending this decision to tear down the existing museum, spend a billion bucks to build a new one. It was going to take eight years to do it. And you'll hear him here defending this project. Here's what he had to say, then I'll get your thoughts. 
I believe that protecting the collective assets of all of the people who have been in British Columbia since time immemorial right up to today is money that is well spent to protect and preserve our collective history. The Royal BC Museum brought forward their case. We spent the past five years doing our due diligence, finding the best way forward. We believe we've arrived at that point, putting in place a plan that we believe is achievable to protect our collective history. Okay, so he says he wants to protect BC's history, and apparently he's been working on this for five years. Your thoughts? <laughs> okay, they have not been working on this for five years. We can protect our history just fine without spending a billion dollars that we don't need to spend on a building that nobody asked for. Look, I think it's important that the public understands something. When it comes to doing capital projects, this government, and they mean well, they just haven't got a clue what they're doing, to be totally candid with you. Um, they, you, that, that's been evidenced in the fact that they cancelled uh, a 10-lane Massey Tunnel Bridge, which frankly would have been opening this summer, which would have provided unbelievable benefits for commuters. Um, they staggered into some bizarre idea of doing an 8-lane tunnel that nobody supports. It makes absolutely very little sense, at least from people that know anything about construction and contracting. Um, and, and now they're doing this project that nobody was asking for, uh, even in their, their own reports from the museum. They never yeah. ever were talking about a brand new building they were talking about refurbishing the existing building and right so I, yeah I yeah I mean, coming from. I mean i i looked at the annual report last night and i looked in some detail about the plan to modernize and upgrade the existing museum which is called the royal bc museum modernization project and it's budgeted for 212 million dollars to do this over several years they already spent nearly 12 million of that last year so, I mean, they're already millions of dollars into upgrading the existing one. Like, what happened to that plan? Well, exactly. And, I mean, this is, yeah. the, this is the crazy thing. It's kind of like, you know, with the Massey Tunnel, where $100 million had already been spent in all the earthworks and the soils works and all the research and everything and and they canceled it in spite of that and and a hundred million dollars got flushed down the drain and now they're doing the same thing here why if he's been working on this for five years somebody please explain why he spent 12 million dollars last year on the same building only to announce a year later they're tearing the entire thing down and building a new billion dollar edifice i mean it's just honestly boggles the mind Speaking to BC Liberal leader Kevin Falcon, he was sworn into his seat in the legislature yesterday. All this, of course, comes at the same time as British Columbians got record high gas prices, highest ever, highest in North America, highest gas taxes on the continent. And here's what Horgan had to say on the same day, by the way, that he announced this billion dollar museum. Here was his advice to drivers getting hammered at the gas pump uh, right now with high gas prices. Here's what he had to say. You can't solve that by just taking a penny or two here. You need to solve that by encouraging people to find other ways to move around, which they are doing. We will have measures to reduce costs for people. But right now, I encourage people to uh, think before you hop in the car. Do you need to make that trip? Is there a way you can do it with a neighbor or uh, someone who's going by? Okay, catch a lift from someone who's going by. Like, I don't even know what he's talking. Like, is he saying hitchhike? What is he talking about? Apparently he is. I had a contractor come up to me the other day and say, you go tell that Horgan guy that he can join me as I take 13 feet of PVC pipe and all my tools and knock on my neighbor's door and ask for a lift around to my work. <laughs> I mean, it is, it is really ridiculous. And the other thing, Mike, is it also shows a total disconnect from the vast majority of this province where you don't actually have a neighbors immediately close by or even, frankly, uh, transit. They require their yeah. vehicles to get around. And, and lots of parents, 
uh, moms and dads are taking their kids, you know, back and forth to different dances and, and, and soccer games, et cetera. They can't go knock on their neighbor's door and say, can you drive my kid around? <laughs> and it's just so devoid of reality. And I think it's because he gets driven around in a government car where the gas is all paid for. And I just honestly think he should do what I did, spend some time at a gas station talking to people as they fill up their cars, and you'll get a really clear sense of just how serious an issue okay. this is. Okay, what would... Okay, what would you do? Because you're already on the record during an earlier surge in gas prices saying, well, don't look at me. I don't have a magic wand to fix this. I mean, do you, did you find one in the meantime? Well, remember, they're quoting that from 2012 when gas yeah. prices were going. I was speaking uh, specifically to a surcharge for taxi drivers so that they could collect extra uh, revenues to cover off the cost of rising gas prices. So, you know, they took it out of context. But look, let's be clear about this. In Alberta, it's about a buck fifty-seven a liter right now. The premier of the province there took off the thirteen cents a liter tax that they had, and guess what? It's been providing an ongoing benefit. No, the gas companies didn't take up that room. It's actually been providing a benefit to their workers. Or, sorry, their workers and, and their consumers. And all we're saying to this government is, look, why don't you take a three-month period, provide some temporary tax relief? Allow people to get through a time where prices are extremely high and it's really hurting families. Waive all the provincial taxes and then provide a one-time boost to the climate action tax credit, which could be paid this July. And that could mean as much as $338, uh, depending on household income, but it's more focused on lower income families. We put that in place as a government. They've stopped using that and sending those credits back to people. But people need it and people need a break. Thank you for coming on today. Appreciate it. Thanks for having me, Mike. All right. Welcome back to the show. Let's talk about police reporting a surge in youth crime and violence. Uh, we st- started last week when the Vancouver Police Department reported a significant number of events of youth swarmings, assaults, property damage. They're worried about it. Uh, I've also spoke to police officers in the last few days who say that this is why we wanted those police liaison programs in schools. They should not have been shut down. In Victoria, same thing. There's a lot of uh, youth mayhem downtown. Uh, Victoria Police are reporting. And I spoke to Victoria Police Chief Del Manic yesterday about this, and he also mentioned the police liaison program. Have a listen to what he had to say to me. We're quite confident that here locally, uh, our school boards and our parents support the police in schools. In fact, I'll leave you with this. A number of yeah. the youth that we engaged with this last weekend, Mike, told us that they actually miss having the school liaison officer Okay, as Victoria Police Chief Delmanic on yesterday's show. Now, we have seen several public school boards shut down these police liaison programs in schools. Was it the right thing to do? All right, let's speak to one of the student activists who uh, thought it was uh, the right thing to do to shut these programs down. I'm very pleased to welcome her to the show. Hallelujah, Hailu. Hallelujah is a black high school student. Hallelujah, are you still at Burnaby North? I actually graduated last June. Um, oh, congratulations. In 2021. Okay, congratulations to you. Uh, hallelujah. Let me, let's talk a little bit about these school liaison programs. You had been one of the outspoken student advocates who thought that the cops should be out of schools, right? Tell me why you feel, you feel that way. Yeah, so um, at least in the context of this conversation, it's been more focused on Vancouver and Victoria. Uh, I went to school in Burnaby School District, which our liaison program was kind of, Every school had a, or I 
assuming still has a cop stationed or assigned to each school. Like some cops, I think, had two schools in a certain bubble and they would kind of just hang around and try and be um, a point of contact for students to talk to and befriend. And at least from my standpoint of it, um, we already had people like that involved in our school. We had uh, safe school specialists, which were more trained counselor figure, figures involved in schools. And the cops in schools weren't stationed in schools full time. It was more a casual thing. And so the cost of having police in schools, um, my perspective being a woman of color, is that you're ending up making a huge group of students who come from a background of black and indigenous people of color completely uncomfortable um, understanding like the history that RCMP do have with black and indigenous people of color. And even if that point of view doesn't like really connect with you, um, it's understanding that um, police and schools aren't stationed to be some sort of security guard. They're supposed to be building a relationship with students to police officers, which isn't um, something that really fosters a good place yeah. in our learning environments. Okay. What do you think about this surge in youth violence that's being reported now by a lot of different police departments, notably the Vancouver Police Department, the Victoria Police Department? We've heard some crazy stories about large gangs of youths causing mayhem, assaulting people, property damage, and a lot of people pointing a finger at this decision to shut down some of these school liaison programs for police officers and saying, look, we told you. We told you this would happen if you took the police out of schools. What do you say to that? Well, um, I, I read the article that the, the Vancouver Sun did on it, and I was kind of not surprised that an article like that would be written because, at least to me, my perspective on like this surge of youth violence isn't that, oh, um, police officers are in school, kids are going to immediately act wild and crazy. It's more kind of a reaction to kids, especially the younger kids, like in high school, 14, 15, not being very socialized after being locked at home. Like when with this whole pandemic, like it's not a hundred percent behind us. A lot of people are still feeling these long-term effects. And when you're kind of at that age of completely just like getting used to adolescence and not being able to interact with people, violence and anger is not exactly the best reaction, but it's a reaction that, young people gravitate towards with this so you so so you so you think that's what's causing it not because police are not in schools anymore yeah um at least yeah. again my perspective it wasn't a constant police officer down every hallway and uh, looking into this more i read uh when i was looking into this like i read the vancouver sun article and i saw a specific article that the cbc did um Two, like uh, It was only four attacks that were mentioned in the CBC article, so I'm assuming it's a lot more um, to warrant this kind of reaction from these different police. Uh, just four, four specifically mentioned, at least in the Vancouver area, and a right. lot of, at least half of them weren't actually at schools. And so the position that, like, I, at least I'm coming from, is that in Vancouver, I'm pretty sure that police and schools were kind of just building a relationship with youth, kind of kind of like starting crime prevention at do like you, youth. And so do you think I speak into hallelujah, 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 she is a recent graduate of high school in Burnaby. And when, when you talked earlier about the feeling that 
kids who are visible minorities in schools, whether like a black student like yourself or an indigenous kid in a school, like when you talk to your friends in the in those communities, like they told you what they were afraid of the police or the police made them uncomfortable or they found the police threatening to be around. Like what? Why did they feel? What did they feel about it? Well, um, I I can personally talk about my experience. Um, I sure. don't talk too much again for other people. It was a thing yeah. where, uh, at least from my perspective, I was a, a relatively good high school student. I, I went to class. I, I did my honors classes or whatever, but it still felt like this thing where my liaison officer followed me around and I felt completely uncomfortable because outside of school, my relationship with police and a lot of people of color's relationship with police, especially in like somewhere in the suburbs, it's like you have a weird story of getting followed around by a cop and questioned for very little reason. And at least uh, I, I haven't talked a lot, a lot about it. Um, my, a lot of my activism with police and schools comes uh, hand in hand with racism in schools, because I think if you're going to talk about police, you have to understand that historically the RCMP in Canada do kind of come with a lot of racism in schools. And when I, in my specific school district situation, started speaking up about it, um, initially I had a lot of peer support of students that looked like me. And a lot of it was, a lot of people became extremely uncomfortable showing as much public support because of the level of harassment I got from people not believing that I had a specific experience because they're like, well, I had this great experience with Lee as an officer. There's no way that you possibly could have had it. And so there are plenty of people that feel that way, the same way as me, but it's more a thing of if you, if somebody else has like a different story, then they're immediately like, no, that that could have never possibly happened. And yeah. Okay. Hallelujah. Thank you for sharing your perspective on the issue today. I appreciate it a lot. Thanks for coming on. Uh, Thank you. Okay, hallelujah, Hailu there. She's a recent graduate of Burnaby North Secondary School, and she supports removing police from schools. Let's get the other side of it now. My guest is Ali Chaudhry. He is also a, a former student activist, and he supports police in schools. Ali, thanks for coming on. Hey, Mike, thank you for having me today. Yeah, yeah, you bet. Thank you. What did you think about what you just heard there? Like, you, you heard that, you know, some black students, indigenous students felt felt uncomfortable around cops in schools. What do you think of that? Well, you know, I don't really like to put a color um, or even a, a identity to the whole situation because it wasn't long ago, just a year ago, where we had black students, indigenous students, um, white students, you know, the whole diverse group of people um, at a rally that supported the program. We had a petition with close to over 2,000 people um, signed we had a VPD video with diverse range of students where they uh, showed their support for the program. So I think it's a more of a personal story that I heard over there. I wouldn't attach it to anything. It would just be um, her own experience uh, yeah. that she may be referring to. And I think that's important to state because we're so used to the constantly. And, you know, and this affects me as a, you know, as a, a South Asian um, you know, person myself is when people use the word BIPOC and, it, and you know, everyone kind of falls under it. I just don't feel like that's a fair statement to make, especially after, you know, a rally was organized. We had black students, indigenous students, and, you know, and a whole range of students saying that we actually support the program. Uh, what I heard a lot from the previous speaker, and this is all, you know, everyone, and I respect everyone and I respect everything that I heard. Um, but I did yeah. hear a lot of, um, personally, um, with all due respect, I heard of a lot of assumptions 
about what school liaison officers do, um, you know, whether they're following in the hallway and making assumptions about you without any actual interaction that happened. I've heard hundreds of stories of positive personal interactions with school liaison officers, not assumptions, but actual stories where they have changed people's lives, including mine, where they helped me stay out of gang life. Um, right. And I, I look back and this is really just history repeating itself. It wasn't long ago in um, late 1990s and early 2000 where they actually cut the school liaison officer program. And when the new chief came in for the Vancouver Police Department and during that span of time when the program was cut, there was close to over 50 South Asian males that were caught in, up in gang conflict within schools. And they had to bring the program back. Right. Mm-hmm. And it's unfortunate that when I had a discussion with the school board trustees with Black, Indigenous, and other students on a Zoom call with me, and we stated that we knew that something like this could happen again, that we had to look at the history of what happened in the school program, when the school um, so, program was cut before. Yeah. It, it's, you know, it's, it's really just history repeating itself. I'm not surprised at all that we're at a stage like this a little over a year later. Yeah, so you believe that some of the youth, the surge in youth crime, assaults, property damage is is connected to shutting down these police liaison programs in schools? Like you think it's causing youth crime, youth violence? 100%. I personally work mm. with youth at risk. And when the program was getting cut, I had students personally tell me that kids are not going to be afraid to bring things like bear spray and stuff to school. And I thought, you know what, let it play out and see what happens. And here we are. Kids are coming from other schools personally. You know, I hear stories from, you know, students from Britannia coming into the front of Templeton and Van Tech students coming to Templeton and, and, you know, causing a whole scene in front of the schools. And why didn't that happen before? Because there was a police car parked in front of the school. People knew that there would be consequences for their actions. And there was a school as an officer inside the school. Um, right. And really yeah. the school as an officer isn't there to go ahead and constantly keep fighting crime. The main goal is to build the relationship between students and the police. But you did have the ability to deter a crime like that. And I'm hearing crazy stories now from these students where kids are getting bear sprays. Kids are able to bring knives to school, um, even to a point where kids are able to bring a gun to school. And it's, and it's frightening to think that the Vancouver School Board um, denied a program that was fully funded by the Vancouver Police Department um, because of... Um, obviously a group of uh, a group of students that were concerned and they had valid concerns and if you remember Mike the last time we talked on the show the other side the side that supports the school and officer program wanted to work together with that side and say yeah maybe they shouldn't be in uniform yeah they were they were open to change like they were open to changing it yeah 100% and you know that's the way we need to move forward in this world we all need to start working together Um, and that's what and that's what I'm looking at a year later and I'm going I I wish that was the way we took rather than totally axing the whole program like the Vancouver School Board did all right welcome back to the show Uh, talking about the surge in youth crime uh, school board shutting down police and schools programs my guest Ali Chowdhury lots of calls Michael and Poco hi Michael what do you think go ahead Oh, hey, how we doing? Um, yeah, I just wanted to call in. Uh, you know, I, as a child and as a youth, I dealt with a lot of uh, problems in my high school. You know, I, I, I was bare-maced. I was bullied. I got uh, knifed once. You know, it was, it was really, really horrible, actually. Um, but we didn't have a very strong liaison program. And, uh, you know, being a, a teenager, I wasn't really on board with police anyway. But having a stronger program, I think, might have changed that and might have, you know, changed it how everything operated in that school and could have made things a little bit safer and 
honestly probably could have changed things down the road with uh, other troubles that I incurred uh, later on in my teenage years. Okay, thank you for sharing that. Ali, you had a similar story. Like, when you were in high school, did you say you were, like, getting involved in some gang stuff and a, a police officer steered you out of it? Is that what happened to you? Hey, Mike. Yeah, exactly. You know, you can start getting involved with the wrong group of people. But, you know, I was fortunate to have a, a strong liaison program at my school. And, you know, the liaison, liaison officer was able to pull a few of us aside and really show us where that life could lead to. But at the same time, yeah. also offer us alternative programs like the VPD Student Challenge and get us involved in those programs and other sport programs that kept us on the right track. So they did more okay. than just keep steer us out. They also got us involved in other things. Uh, Kathy on the line in North Vancouver. Hi, Kathy. Go ahead. Hi. Thanks so much. So this is the very thing that I speak to all around the province. Uh, you know what I do. I'm stopping child sex trafficking. The schools now have become recruiting grounds for gangs and sex trafficking. So when Vancouver School Board removed their school liaison officer program, I warned them. I said, this is a green light for organized crime to move in, which now I see they're doing. You didn't even mention what is happening in New Westminster. They now have sexual harassment and rape culture that's developed there. So I presented last night to a school district in the Kootenays, and I said, the number one thing you want to do is keep your school liaison officer program. An anti-police narrative harms our communities. Okay, Kathy, thank you for calling in and sharing that. Ali, we've got 30 seconds left. Do you think these programs should be restored in Vancouver schools and other school districts? Your thoughts? You know, uh, 100%. And any of the other concerns that, you know, the opposing side has, I think are valid and that they need to be addressed. Whether, sure. it's, you know, and, you know, if it's people don't feel comfortable with them wearing uniforms, let's, let's you know what, let's work together. Let's change it. Let's go without uniforms, guns under the hoodie, because guns are obviously a requirement for them. Um, from what I know. So, and then getting them back in the schools and getting the kids involved in these programs that the VPD had to offer, building that relationship at once again, but also stopping right. this crime that's been happening in front of the schools where other schools are coming all together. Ali, thank you for your time today. Appreciate it. Yeah, thanks for having me, Mike. Thank all right, welcome back. Let's talk about the continuing bottlenecks and backlogs at Canadian airports now. YVR and other major airports in Canada encouraging passengers to arrive early for your flights. Prepare to wait while navigating long lineups. Why are these delays happening? Well, the government blames a shortage of airport security screeners for one thing. How bad is it right now? Could it get worse as people return to traveling again? Check out this tweet now from Duncan D., the former chief operating officer at Air Canada. He tweets, I've just been informed that airlines have been asked to reduce their schedules, i.e. cancel flights, to assist with the federal government-created mess at the airport. Duncan D. joins me now, former C uh, Chief Operating Officer at Air Canada. Duncan, thanks for coming on today. Great to be with you, Mike. Oh, okay, this is very interesting, following you on Twitter with some of your insights here under the travel industry in Canada. Can you tell me what's going on? Well, it's now been confirmed, in fact, by uh, Transport Canada that um, the GTAA, which is the Greater Toronto Airports Authority, quote, floated, unquote, the cancellation of flights with the airlines to cope with the massive queues at uh, the airports across the country, mainly Vancouver, Montreal, and Toronto, which are the largest airports. And as you uh, noted earlier, 
uh, Vancouver Airport, in fact, has been advising travelers to show up at the airports up to three hours before their flight departure, which is, you know, three times longer than what they normally would have to show up uh, at the airport for. So the the situation is ugly, and it's even going to get uglier with uh, schools letting out in a few weeks' time and summer vacationers uh, taking to the skies. Okay, what do you think of this concept, asking airlines, look, help us out here. Can you cancel some flights for us here? What do you think of that? Look, I think that airlines have been struggling uh, with the pandemic for the last couple of years. And really, uh, this is the only time of year that is unquestionably profitable for the Canadian airline industry. So they use the profits that they generate from the summer peak to finance the weaker periods of the year. So asking the airlines to do that is really tough, but it's also very tough for Canadian travelers. Imagine many Canadian travelers are going to be taking their first real holiday yeah. of the, since the start of the pandemic in about three, four, five weeks' time, and it, they're going to start taking the skies to go to places that they've only dreamed of taking, going to in the last couple of years. And so if airlines cancel flights, that means stranded Canadians or Canadians just being told, sorry, you can't travel. Oh, man. Speaking of Duncan D., former chief operating officer at Air Canada, uh, I spoke to the union president who represents airport security screeners a couple of weeks ago on the show, and he said, look, the feds should have seen this coming. They knew that there was pent-up demand to travel again. They should have been prepared. Do you agree with that assessment? I think that... uh he is 100% correct. The, this is n- unfortunately not a mystery to anybody except maybe the federal government. This <laughs> pent-up demand in travel has been building and building. Look, all you have to do is ask your friends and neighbors how many of them have trips planned this summer. Maybe many of them are taking uh, road trips, but I can tell you many of my friends and family are, are planning on taking to the skies. They're, they're going on trips that they've been planning not for a few months, but for a couple of years. They just want to yeah. get out and see some normalcy again. And, you know, I, I, it's, it's, it's unclear to me how the federal government could have dropped the ball this badly. Um, and, you know, the one thing that I should mention is while the Vancouver Airport Authority and other airports are advising their customers to travel or to arrive at the airport three hours before departure, some of these uh, customers get to the line at, at uh, CATSA at the security checkpoint and they're told they're there too early, that <laughs> they won't be allowed to come in until an hour and a half before their flight departure. So it's, oh. it's, it's really a difficult situation for airlines, for travelers and for airports. And, and hopefully, um, but, you know, the union leader that you spoke to uh, can encourage their bosses to, to bring in more staff. Yeah, I think it is uh, concerning to realize, too, that a lot of this is happening right now when we're at lower than normal passenger volumes, are we not? I mean, we haven't got back to pre-pandemic levels yet, and we're having problems already. Is that correct? Well, last week, the Minister of Transport himself admitted that while the Air Air Security Service is operating at 90% of its pre-pandemic staffing levels, Air traffic is at around 70% of its pre-pandemic levels. So we are nowhere near where we were uh, before the pandemic. And in fact, if you take his own numbers, there are more staff processing fewer passengers than before the pandemic. Right. What can be done to, to fix this? I mean, we all know about the tight labor market out there. It's difficult not only for the federal government to find employees to staff airports, but lots of businesses 
in private and public sector are struggling to find staff. What can we do to fix this? Look, I mean, I think that the staffing issue is one thing. The other thing is air security agencies around the world have used data and technology to speed up their security processes. Just one small example, uh, the TSA, which is the U.S. Transport Security Administration, um, has a program called PreCheck. What they do is they, they encourage people to get pre-vetted to provide their information ahead of time, and then they get expedited security. So on any given day at any given airport, you can have upwards of 10, 15, 20% of travelers who have expedited security, which require fewer resources. They get through the process much more quickly, which leaves more staff to handle your occasional travelers that require a, a little bit more resources. I mean, last week, the Minister of Transport actually blamed travelers for being out of practice for causing the queues, which is insane. I mean, you know, if he hasn't seen anything yet, because with, with the summer travel coming up, those are going to be mainly families, families with young children. And if he is worried about people who are out of practice, you know, he's going to be seeing much more of that in the coming weeks. Yeah, I mean, the, the pent-up demand that is out there, people want to get traveling again. They've put off these trips for years now. And the Canada's tourism sector as well has had two lost summers of travel and they want to get back to normal. So would you say that, you know, time is of the essence here? Summer is, summer is coming. This, this traffic volume is coming. Is, is it like this time is last? Is we're down to the wire here. Your thoughts? We, you are absolutely right. We are down to the wire. The clock is ticking. Not only is the summer coming, but the summer is also going to be ending, which means that the tourism sector only has so, so little time to make the profits they need to get them through the leaner times of the year in Canada. Let's, let's face it, other than Whistler and the ski resorts, there are very few tourists that come to Canada in the off-season outside the summer. Can, you know, foreign tourists want to come to visit you know, the, the, the coast of B.C., when it's beautiful and sunny, not when it's dreary, although it's always beautiful to me. But, you know, at the end of the day, it's extremely difficult to tell a tourism sector that has been hard hit for two whole summers that they've yeah. got to wait for another year before they can make more money. Okay, we're following this one closely. Thank you very much for coming on with your insight on it today. I appreciate it. Thanks, Mike.